Hello, friends, and welcome to the Daily Evolver Live. I'm Jeff Salzman. It's Tuesday, May 10th, 2016, and I am happy to be with you and here with Brett. How you doing tonight, Brett? I'm doing well. Brett was just out planting some flowers. Yes, making I was. Beautifying the place, getting ready for summer. Yeah, it's really therapeutic. Yeah, and it's beautiful. Indeed. All right. Well, tonight we're going to focus on one of my favorite topics, and that is American politics. I've mostly steered clear of it the last two podcasts because I had been talking about it. It's everywhere in the in in the air and water. And, uh, you know, I wanted to turn away for a while, but, you know, it's time because now we know something really significant, and that is we know the nominee of the two major parties, barring some unforeseen black swan event. Uh, it will be Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump. So here we go. It's going to be a roller derby. And so we're going to use the integral lens to see if we can you know, raise the resolution a little more deeply, see some of the bigger patterns, and do our integral thing. Before we do, I do want to, as always, thank Integral Life, um, Corey DeVos and, and David Reardon and the folks, Ken Wilbur, good Lord, for being the major integral portal to the integral world. And I particularly want to point out Ken Wilbur's new uh, program, Full Spectrum Mindfulness, which is a real meditation teaching based on integral theory. I'm really impressed by it. And I, I want to talk about it on a future show because I actually think it's, you know, a new thing and evolutionarily potent and sort of the, a baseline for an integral spirituality. So in the meantime, I'd love to hear your experiences with it for any, any of you who are working with it, and uh, we'll take a look. Uh, I also want to encourage people, if you are interested in integral theory, to check out a couple charts that help you to understand what I talk about. I do use some integral jargon, and uh, these are charts that are findable. If you're listening live, Brett, you'll put them in the comments section on Integral Radio, the website. And if not, if you're listening later, they're on our website, dailyevolver.com under integral theory, about integral theory, and it's the first thing you see. And these are a chart, two charts, one that deals with the altitudes of development and the other that deals uh, with the quadrants of reality. And in the spirit of this subject tonight, politics is something that is happening in real time, and it is a astonishing um, departure from politics as usual. If you have any comments or questions you might want me to uh, deal with, uh, even in real time or later, you can put them in the comments section and Brett will bring them to my attention. All right, before I get into the actual political race, I want to share something that hit my integral radar this weekend. Somebody sent me a recording of a college commencement speech, and this is, of course, the season for that, uh, and it was done by an integral practitioner who I admire. And I want to play an excerpt of it because I thought he hit on some very important integral themes very eloquently, such as the case for progress, uh, the case for turning toward your struggle, 
joyfully. And also, he transmitted sort of an uplift, that, that sort of sense of, as he put it, gladness of integral consciousness. And I think it's a really nice way to start this show because it, I think it'll actually transmit to us and put us in a state of integral consciousness. So it occurs to me also, actually, that many of you may have heard of this integral thinker who did this speech. He has a very high profile. Um, he's the president of the United States of America. Yeah. So, you know, this is <laughs> a little transmission from Barack Obama, my hero, uh, where he spoke at a, a, a commencement at Howard University, which is the preeminent historically black university in the U.S., so, you know, this is clearly something he's doing in his last eight months in office. It's a message to young people, and particularly young African-American people. And as you'll hear, they receive it very well, and so did I. And I hope you do too. And it's a little over seven minutes, so sit back and relax and take a breath and receive what I think is a true integral transmission. And I'll talk a little bit about why I think that after the recording. So here's Barack Obama on Saturday. Given the current state of our political rhetoric and debate, let me say something that may be controversial, and that is this. America is a better place today than it was when I graduated from college. Let me repeat, America is by almost every measure better than it was when I graduated from college. It also happens to be better off than when I took office, but that's a longer story. That's a different discussion for another speech. But think about it. I graduated in 1983. New York City, America's largest city, where I lived at the time, had endured a decade marked by crime and deterioration and near bankruptcy. And many cities were in similar shape. Our nation had gone through years of economic stagnation, the stranglehold of foreign oil, a recession where unemployment nearly scraped 11%. The auto industry was getting its clock cleaned by foreign competition. And don't even get me started on the clothes and the hairstyles. I, I've tried to eliminate all photos of me from this period. I thought I looked good. I was wrong. Since that year, since the year I graduated, the poverty rate is down. Americans with college degrees, that rate is up. Crime rates are down. America's cities have undergone a renaissance. There are more women in the workforce. They're earning more money. We've cut teen pregnancy in half. We've slashed the African-American dropout rate by almost 60%. And all of you have a computer in your pocket that gives you the world at the touch of a button. In 1983, I was part of fewer than 10% of African Americans who graduated with a bachelor's degree. 
Today you're part of more than 20% who will. And more than half of blacks say we're better off than our parents were at our age and that our kids will be better off too. So America is better. And the world is better too. A wall came down in Berlin. An iron curtain was torn asunder. The obscenity of apartheid came to an end. A young generation in Belfast and London have grown up without ever having to think about our IRA bonds. In just the past 16 years, we've come from a world without marriage equality to one where it's a reality in nearly two dozen countries. Around the world, more people live in democracies. We've lifted more than one billion people from extreme poverty. We've cut the child mortality rate worldwide by more than half. America's better. The world is better. And stay with me now. Race relations are better since I graduated. That's the truth. No, my, my election did not create a post-racial society. I don't know who was propagating that notion. That was not mine. But the election itself, and the subsequent one, because the first one, folks might have made a mistake. The second one, they knew what they were getting. The election itself was just one indicator of how attitudes had changed. In, in my inaugural address, I remarked that just 60 years earlier, my father might not have been served in a D.C. restaurant, at least not certain of them. There were no black CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, very few black judges. Shoot, as, as Larry Wilmore pointed out last week, a lot of folks didn't even think blacks had the tools to be a quarterback. Today, former Bull Michael Jordan isn't just the greatest basketball player of all time. He owns the team. When I was graduating, the main black hero on TV was Mr. T. <laughs> Rap and hip-hop were counterculture, underground. Now Shonda Rhimes owns Thursday night. And Beyonce runs the world. We're no longer entertainers, we're producers, studio executives, no longer small business owners, we're CEOs. We're mayors, representatives, presidents of the United States. Now, I am not saying gaps do not persist. Obviously, they do. Racism persists. Inequality persists. Don't worry, I'm, I'm going to get to that. But I wanted to start class of 2016 by opening your eyes to the moment that you are in. If you had to choose one moment in history, in which you could be born, and you didn't know ahead of time who you were going to be, what nationality, what gender, what race, 
whether you'd be rich or poor, gay or straight, what faith you'd be born into, you wouldn't choose a hundred years ago. You wouldn't choose the 50s or the 60s or the 70s. You'd choose right now. If you had to choose a time to be in the words of Lorraine Hansberry, young, gifted, and black in America, you would choose right now. I tell you all this because it's important to note progress. Because to deny how far we've come would do a disservice to the cause of justice, to the legions of foot soldiers, to not only the incredibly accomplished individuals who've already been mentioned, but your mothers and your dads and grandparents and great-grandparents who marched and toiled and suffered and overcame to make this day possible. I tell you this not to lull you into complacency, but to spur you into action because there's still so much work to do, so many more miles to travel. And America needs you to gladly, happily take up that work. Yeah, well, thank you, Brother Barack. I mean, what I love about that is, or what I find integral about that, is that it really is based on this idea of humanity moving forward. And he talks a lot about what we've done, what we've accomplished. And he points out specifically that he's not talking about himself or his administration. As he said, that's a speech for another time. But he's talking, when he talks about we in this context, of, well, we who have cut teen pregnancy in half. We who have slashed the African-American dropout rate by almost 60%. That's the American people. That's what we as a collective, you know, with a lot of sturm und drang and a lot of conflict and struggle, that's what we have done, we Americans. And then he expands to a world-centric idea. He talks about we've lifted more than one billion people from extreme poverty. We've cut the child mortality rate worldwide by more than half. We, the people of the world. And... That's a delicious um, identity. It's a big identity. And it's, it's an identity that comes online in green. And it really takes full blossom in both the interiors and exteriors at the integral stage, which also begins to bring online the next identity, which is this cosmos-centric identity. So we have nation-centric, world-centric, and cosmos-centric and this is the identity, not just of all people, but all people throughout history. And I love that he offers this thought experiment to the students to imagine that they got a random draw in life, that they didn't know where or when or who or what religion or what family they would be born into. Where would they want to be born? Um, and... I, I've always found that, actually, to be a, 
one of the, you know, as, as I have argued for integral theory and for progress and evolution and all of that good stuff with my green friends, particularly, uh, who feel that many of them, that we're living in an ever-darkening world, you know, that the corporate system, all of that is bringing us to a, you know, eco-dystopic end, um, that, you know, where would you rather be born? I mean, what, with all the problems, where, you know, what, what time? And I must say, it generally stops people. They, they can't really, the 50s, the, no, really, you know, and, and it, you turn, it turns out that, you know, some of them go for a mythic past before agriculture, you know, and the cancer of human civilization. But, but for the most part, people realize that for all of our problems, that this is indeed the best time to be alive and that it's getting better. And there are, of course, the big problems of the, the, that world-centric people can see, such as climate and resources and pollution and that sort of thing. And that needs to be solved too, of course. That's the, the, the new challenge that arises out of this stage. But um, there is so much that is in place to create lives that are free and decent for ever-increasing numbers of people and ever-increasing percentages of people. I, I also liked that he brought up the race relations thing, because this has become a meme on the right. Uh, if Fox News uh, particularly uh, has a sort of a, a conventional wisdom going that race relations have degenerated under Obama. Uh, and they point out the high-profile police killings and the backlash that has become Black Lives Matter, which they find scary. And integralists, well, Obama certainly doesn't find it to be uh, that way. Uh, and I think what we realize as we move into postmodern and post-postmodern consciousness is that we want to get the voices in the system. It's like what we do for our own therapy when we go to a therapist. We want to identify the voice of anger and allow it to speak, uh, particularly if it's nonviolent. And, you know, for the most part it is, even culturally. So we can see it and feel it. And when we see and feel the anger, we begin to see and feel the hurt that lies behind the anger. And as we see that, we see what lies behind the hurt. And that is the want of all of God's precious children, all human beings, to be seen and loved and included, to matter. And so that changes that whole, um, you know, it changes the whole project. And, you know, there's a lot we can say about race, and, and we'll t deal more in, 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 in another time, but I just love how he, you know, pushed back against that meme. And then, you know, another integral marker, I think, for him is that it's somehow he just feels post-fear and anxiety. And this is sort of one of the major theoretical tenets of integral theory, is that the first-tier memes or the first six stages of development right up through, you know, traditionalism, modernism, postmodernism, all of them are motivated by a lack or a fear 
or a, a sense of not being enough, that something went wrong. Human beings drove this thing into a ditch, and now we need to fix it, or we're going to be doomed. I mean, that's every stage has that story. And that's, you know, from an integral perspective, appropriate. You know, those stages, uh, you know, kept us growing. Those stories kept us growing. And those fear kept us growing. And, you know, at, at some point, we realize, we, we see the system at work. And then we begin to, um, how would I say it, compare real life not to a fantasy of what we think real life is, but to a system that is integrating and evolving to greater stages of goodness, truth, and beauty. So, um, and I, you know, it's, uh, it invites a positive engagement. For, for me, with Obama so much, he literally transmits. So when we talk about somebody transmitting, it's not just ideas, it's also subtle energy. So it's not just ideas in the upper left quadrant, it's subtle energy, it's body energy in the upper right. And I get that from him, that there's a sort of an intimacy and an authenticity that um, I think inspires me and others with ears to hear. So, so thank you, Obama. All right, so let's get into the roller derby. Oh, my God. Brett. Yes? Hillary versus Trump. Here we go. Here we go, yeah. So, all right, so let's, this is what we have, um, barring the unforeseen, as I said. And let's look at how these two candidates line up. Um, with integral theory, I've talked a lot about both of them. Uh, but there's some new things that I've been thinking about, and I'll, I'll just share them with you here. Um, I, I, first of all, I, I would say that Hillary is, um, well, let me just respond to a letter that I got from one of our listeners, Holly, from, as she puts it, the left coast of Oregon. And um, she is responding to a talk that I did with Dr. Keith Witt in our series that we do called The Shrink and the Pundit. He's the shrink, the psychiatrist, and I'm the pundit, which is, requires no um, particular training <laughs> or expertise. Uh, <laughs> but at any rate, we talked about in this last episode the psychology of politics. And um, so she's responding. She said, I, I, I listened to your talk, and I'm wondering why you, being Keith and I, put Hillary at the modern stage of development instead of integral. I understand that when we hear about her sharp intellect, her white paper plans for everything, that we might think the modern stage. Of course, modern is all about planning and intellect and competence and so forth. So... Holly goes on. She says, however, I also see her agreeing with postmodern ideas, such as women and children's rights, and being able to sit down with Wall Street folks and hammer out good policies of regulation, which is traditionalist. I also see her as a fighter when need be, a warrior. Of course, this is red. And when she is asked to explain a specific problem, I hear several perspectives coming back. At the end of your talk with Keith, where you say that modernists don't light up the room, and we were talking about, you know, they're sort of non-ideological and pragmatic, so they don't get people's passions flowing. 
She said, I wonder if that's an integral problem. I remember you saying integralists are not going to be the hit of the party because we are universal donors to all levels. But being integral is a hard sell in the face of more extreme views, don't you think? So she's making the case for Hillary being at the integral stage. And I actually agree. And um, of course, Hillary is um, for sure green. I mean, uh, when I sort of stacked up the candidates, Bernie is so doctrinaire green that he sort of covers that territory in such, you know, almost a textbook way. And Hillary, um, you know, God knows she has the great downloads of green, such as, you know, environmentalism and feminism and, you know, children's rights and all of that. Uh, And of course, she also works in the modern system. And she has multiple perspectives. There's no doubt about it. And I think she also knows about integral theory, per se. Certainly, Bill Clinton does. He has mentioned Ken Wilber and integral theory publicly, positively, admiringly, in a number of occasions, as has Al Gore. Uh, so I assume she knows. But I would say that Hillary is the, you know, what we would say the entry-level integral. She's the teal, which is uh, more of a, um, you know, certainly multi-perspectival, able to see um, into other people, their perspectives, how to uh, choose from many different uh, perspectives, uh, but not in a spiritual way. What happens in the move from teal to turquoise is we move from a head orientation to a heart orientation in terms of integral. That's not to say that teal can't be very you know, emotional and, and connected in a heart way to people who, you know, like children who are suffering, so forth. I mean, she's got plenty of that. But um, Obama has sort of a, 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 a music to it that I think is a marker of a turquoise uh, uh, stage, and that's, that's the difference. And, you know, what I was just talking about with Obama is he has that sense of uplift, and she doesn't somehow. I mean, maybe to some people, and I'm, 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 you know, I'm just sort of thinking out loud here. But she's more about grinding it out and fighting it out day by day. And you know, both are important. Uh, but it's best, of course, when teal that sort of ability to fight it out and grind it out, which you know, Obama has too, is integrated into turquoise. So. You know, that's sort of where I put her on the scale, and I think this is a moving target. And, you know, as integralists, we're trying to, like, sort this out, and it's not about getting it right. And I'm really happy to hear different ideas on this. But I think she is solidly teal, and I'll go with that for now. But she does have political problems. First of all, she has the, you know, sort of the brand of being un- um, trustworthy and that sort of thing. Uh, but I got to say, I think it's pretty thin gruel in terms of what's going to hurt her in the election. I mean, the Benghazi thing was fought in, in the last election with Romney and Obama. And that, you know, Obama won by five points. It was essentially a landslide. And, you know, you know the Benghazi thing is basically that the State Department spun the attack in Benghazi as a demonstration about an anti-Muslim video instead of a, just a, basically a terrorist attack. 
And, you know, I think there's arguments on both sides. It's, you know, hours and hours of testimony. I can't pretend to have figured it out. But let's say that they're right, that the, the administration did that, that they actually spun an event to their benefit. Is, you know, oh my God, that really happened? You know, that's um, not a great thing. It should have got exposed, but it's not, you know, anything like Watergate or I ran Contra or any of the, you know, high treason that uh, pass for scandals in most administration. Um, the email server, same way. I mean, I just don't quite get it. But there is a, you know, Hillary hating industry. And that generally has its home on the right, but it's <laughs> developed, unfortunately, its home on the left too. And you see this uh, on particularly social media with the Bernie bros and the, you know, extreme Bernie partisans, Bernie Sanders partisans, who accuse Hillary of all kinds of nefarious schemes. And, you know, just they basically make that move from she's not just wrong, but she's bad. And she's not just bad, but she's evil. You know, this is the real actual slippery slope of first-tier thinking. And she's the tool of the system. And actually, in that last point, they're right. You know, that's the big problem for Hillary in this election, is that she, despite all of her, you know, being a woman and you know, the future and new ideas and all of that stuff that she talks about, that she still represents the system as it is. And that may be a killer in this election. I'm just not sure. And so let's look at that. So what is the system? And it involves, of course, all four quadrants. But mainly when we talk about the system in American politics, we're talking about the economy and politics. And this is, you know, the economy is always about how the wealth of a people is created, how we get stuff, what we need, and then how it's distributed among the population. And every stage of development has a way of working with those two things, creating wealth and distributing wealth. The indigenous people do it. The hunter-gatherers do it. The feudal empires did it. Uh, democracies do it now. And, and so, you know, here we are in 2016, the United States, a, a mature democracy. And what we see as, is that we have a situation here where for the last 40 years, that's two generations, the wealth creation has increased. You know, we're creating more and more with less and less but that 90% of that increase has gone to the top 10% of the population and more intensely to the top 1% of the population. Uh, there was an article in the New York Times in the front page of the business section today talking about how despite all of the you know, regulation and uh, efforts from the government to the contrary, that hedge fund managers and the hedge fund managers last year made uh, the top ones made over a billion dollars. And hedge funds didn't even particularly do that well last year. But they still made the top ones over a billion dollars each. I think the top one was $1.7 billion is what that person made. 
We have CEOs making hundreds of times the wages of their average workers. And of course, politics is very tied into this. We have a megalopolis now in Washington, D.C., of think tanks and journalists and lobbyists who funnel money from donors who want to influence policy, big donors. It's, it's turned into this, this megalopolis is the, the highest per capita wealthy city in the country. You know, it feels starting to feel like Rome or something, you know. And it's built on this polarization industrial complex of media and pundits and writer and professional ideologues, researchers, who feed ideology to, you know, population who sends them money. I mean, these people are, you know, the, the Sean Hannity's, the Rush Limbaugh's, um, uh, these people are, are wealthy. Arianna Huffington. And it's bipartisan. Hillary Clinton is, well, you remember when they left the White House, whenever it was in, I guess, the year 2000, she has said famously that they were dead broke when they left the White House. They had debt and so forth. And now she's worth $44 million, all while serving as a senator and secretary of state. It's not like she built a big company or, you know, created wealth. She did it through speeches. And uh, I don't know uh, if many of you saw, I, I thought, a really damning episode on 60 Minutes about how Congress people spend 20 to 30 or more hours a week raising money. And they actually have to leave their Capitol Hill offices to do it because it's illegal to use your Capitol office for raising money. So they have these sweatshops down the street from the Capitol. The Republicans have them and the Democrats have them. And they go there and they literally get into little cubicles with telephones and they work their lists. I mean, you'd swear they were selling Ginsu knives and 20, 30 more plus hours a week. That's a work week for a lot of people. And, you know, and then outside of the big whiteboards where it shows how they're doing and who's ahead and it's, you know, <laughs> reminds me of one of my favorite movies, Glengarry Glen Ross, which is just a, this hideous indictment of that orange money-grubbing culture of salesmanship and closing and getting the mark and the deal. And, and that's what they're doing. These are our Congress people. And, you know, it's like, you know, to just get, put it in some perspective, it's like, you know, we have an industrial informational economy, but it's like having an agricultural economy. And everybody in the culture works one way or the other, indirectly or directly, in tending the fields and the herds and, you know, making the equipment and, you know, get, growing the food. But 90% of the food goes to a tiny percent of the people to whom the fields belong. And actually, we did try that for about a millennium. It was called the monarchy. And their functionaries, the aristocracy, and they ended up on the wrong end of the pitchfork. And, you know, that's what we're seeing. And, you know, there's, there are a couple important structural downsides, apparently, of a mature democracy that are really coming into view. And one of them we have seen for a while, and this is the, the this this is the, the 
the, the sort of red flag that conservatives see very easily. Liberals don't see this as easily. But it's the hazard of free riding, where if you create this sort of government business complex uh, with the complex um, social safety nets and, and, and rules and, 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 and food stamps and all of these, you, you develop free riders. You develop people who live off the wealth created by others. Again, this is a problem that indigenous people deal with. This is a problem that people have dealt with all through um, history. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about the Bedouins of, 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 South, uh, or of Saudi Arabia. And these are a nomad culture. This is a sort of a, a, a magenta, uh, uh, red, amber culture. And their ethic was anti-kindness. You don't want to give things to people who aren't pulling their weight. You can't. The culture can't handle it. And that's still true, although we can handle it more. But we have a free rider problem with this big bureaucratic system that we've created, this big orange system that we've created. And then the other problem, so free riding's one, that's the one the conservatives see. The other one is rent-seeking. And this is where the powerful in the system use the system to spin more resources their way through regulation and legislation. And that's a lot of what Washington, D.C. is about right now. And what we're seeing is that more and more of the country is becoming hip to not just the first problem, free riding. It's a, it's a problem, people are getting it, but also rent-seeking. That the system is corrupt where you have people who are actually running the system saying, okay, you know, it's like you know shoveling coal into the uh, engine room of the Titanic. It's like one for you and one for me. And, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm you know, ha- I'm, I'm, I'm siphoning something, I'm, a, a portion of it off for myself and creating my own pile. And people who are actually working the system, who are able to manage the system, are you know siphoning a little their way. And so you end up with at the extremes hedge fund managers making $1.7 billion a year, and, you know, on the not-so-bad side, an ex-first lady with $44 million who's, you know, running for office and has influence that is for, you know, at least access for sale. And so, as I said, people are getting hip to this, and so we move into the situation where we have these two candidates, Trump and Sanders both, who radically challenge the system. And bizarrely, neither of them are part of the traditional parties. You know, Sanders is technically not even a Democrat. And Trump, although technically a Republican, isn't actually ideologically a Republican in many, many ways that have the Republican Party freaked. And, you know, because of the internet and social media, um, and just connectivity in general in this amazing lower left culture that we live in where there's every voice online. Why do we need parties? You know, anybody can talk to anybody. Anybody can align with anybody. The parties have traditionally been the middleman for ideas. You know, the think tanks and they fund studies and they go recruit candidates and they support candidates. But we don't need that anymore. We don't need a middleman for ideas. We don't need a middleman for money. Both Bernie and Trump 
have shown that in different ways. And also Obama, to a degree, although he did both. But Bernie's been all small donations. And he has, I forget how many hundreds of million dollars he's raised, but, you know, he's playing with all the money he needs. Uh, compared to Jeb Bush, on the other hand, who raised over $100 million and came in 16th, paying, I think it was $5,300 per vote in Iowa. And that's, you know, that itself is a fundamental undermining of this whole system. We see that this system isn't necessary, and the system is seeing that we see it's not necessary. And it's, you know, a time that is very ripe for radical change. And so, you know, enter Donald Trump in his campaign of conquest that is just so red. You know, he's just, I see him as like one of those icebreaker ships that is just barreled through the Republican Party and is about to take on the larger political system. And um, he's driving me crazy in a way because, you know, his unorthodox positions and just his uh, orientation of blowing up the system is appealing to me. And I think to a lot of people because the system, you know, whether you, you, it's more the Trump thing or the Sanders thing, um, it needs to be radically confronted. But on the other hand, he's characterologically disqualified because he's, what did John Stewart call him? A man baby <laughs> or a baby man. <laughs> and he is, you know. I mean, part of him, to use levels and lines of development, several of important lines of development for him, such as moral and <laughs> interpersonal, are arrested at red. And that doesn't say he doesn't have other lines that are, you know, up in orange and green even. Uh, but, you know, there's problems with the guy. So anyway, but, you know, clearly his strategy, to the degree that he has one, and that's part of what makes him so compelling, is he doesn't seem to have much of a strategy other than fight. And that's red. All red does is fight. I mean, that's their job, is to be powerful and to make an impact and to differentiate from other people and to... You know, be the um, you know the, the the guy with the most. So he says to George Stephanopoulos on Sundays, being interviewed about you know uniting the parties. You know, now he's the nominee. His job is to unite the Republican Party. That's how it works. Okay. And so the question is, does the party have to be unified? This is Trump now. He says, "I'm very different than everybody else. Perhaps anybody else who's ever run for office. I actually don't think." the party has to be unified. I think it would be better if it was unified. I think there'd be something good about it. But I don't think it actually has to be unified in the traditional sense. So Stephanopoulos asks, asks him, so how will you win? And he says, I'm going to go out and get millions of people from the Democrats. In fact, I'm going to get the Bernie Sanders people to vote for me. And, you know, there's some truth to that. Uh, for those of you who pay attention of to such things. You may have noticed that today there was a small earthquake that ran through the political punditry, and that was the release this morning of the Quinnipiac poll, which is a respected poll. 
that shows really one of the first polls that have come online since the you know presumptive nominees are Clinton and Trump. So this is a new ball game here. It's only a week or so old here. In fact, it's a week old as of tonight. And it shows that in Florida, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, which are three key swing states, that um, Trump and Clinton are essentially tied. He's a little ahead in Pennsylvania. She's a little ahead in Ohio. Uh, but it's all within the, the, um, uh, the margin of error. And we see that uh, Trump's you know, sort of uh, red transmission has brought out a lot of people who haven't voted before. He got a million more votes than Romney got, who was the winner of the Republican nomination last time. He got a million more people to come out and vote than Romney did. 60% more turnout. That begins to upend all political calculations. Even these premises of polls, you know, polls are based on likely voters, which means voters who have voted before. And now we have you know, people, I know one person who actually is a pretty significant agoraphobic. He doesn't really like to leave his house. He's a little paranoid. He, you know, feels that the, he's literally put tinfoil on his windows so that people can't beam in, you know, raise to him. But he's so turned on by Trump that he went out and registered and got himself to the polls and voted for Trump. And so this is a wild card that is, you know, really much, very much in play. And we have the liberal case against Trump. And of course, Hillary's, this is Hillary's, you know, her sort of counter. And I think it was articulated probably most um, succinctly by Elizabeth Warren in <laughs> her famous Twitter war with Trump over the weekend, where she tweeted out that Trump has built his campaign on racism, sexism, and xenophobia. And I, I will say that this is, you know, this statement is more true for green progressives than it is for orange modernists and particularly amber um, traditionalists. It's like Chris Rock said, and I posted this on our site under the the, what's new, the evolution in the culture. His um, opening monologue for the Academy Awards where he talked about racism. And he says, you know, there's racism where people are lynched and enslaved. There's racism of go fetch me a lemonade. And there's racism where it's, well, you know, we're just members of different sororities. And, you know, that's the evolution of racism. Well, there's an evolution of sexism and xenophobia too, but I really want to uh, focus on the sexism part here because um, the majority of people live in a world where they feel that the political correct speech codes are oppressive. They sort of will cooperate in the public sphere, which is actually progress, you know, in, in, in work and in church and whatever. But they have a different relationship to the opposite sex than people at Green and even Integral do. And so I want to play uh, a recording of an interview that Jake Tapper did over the weekend with, well, it has Trump in it, where he's talking about this 
problem of political correctness. And then Jake Tapper asks uh, one of his uh, high-profile female supporters to um, comment. And the person that he asks, and this is the bulk of the recording, is Sarah Palin. And, you know, Sarah Palin is a punchline for progressives. But I want to invite you to do an integral practice around Sarah Palin, and that is to take her seriously. Assume she is sincere in what she says. She actually is a little bit dyslexic. She really is. She confuses words and tenses grammatically, but that doesn't mean she's stupid, and that doesn't mean that she doesn't speak for a strata of people, even though she's become a caricature of herself. Uh, but at any rate, just as a practice, listen to her and really feel what she's saying. And and this is uh, actually in regard to both sexism and xenophobia, and uh, this is a response to the liberal case against Trump. So hit it, Brett. A lot of Republicans are worried about Trump's poor standing with women voters, which is why I ask um, about whether or not he should put a woman on the ticket. According to a Gallup poll conducted last month, as I'm sure you know, seven in 10 voters have an, uh, women voters have an unfavorable view of Mr. Trump. Take a listen to something he said this week. All of the men, we're petrified to speak to women anymore. We may raise our voice. You know what? The women get it better than we do, folks. All right? They get it better than we do. As a very prominent female supporter of Donald Trump, do you wince when he says things like that? Heck no. I'm like, Trump, you know, you're saying what a lot of other people are thinking. Um, he just happens to be the most candid about it in, in a public arena than most Americans are used to. So no, I don't win. Say, and, and I know the man, and I've known him for years, and I so appreciate that he has great respect for women. He listens to the sharp, confident women in his lives, his, his wife, his daughter, those who surround him in business. Um, he listens to even... You know, Joe Blow, hockey mom from Wasilla, if I have an idea that uh, would perhaps make sense with his conservative agenda. No, I know the man, and I respect him because he respects women. Let's talk about Latino voters for a second. Senator John McCain, your former running mate, has publicly maintained that Donald Trump, he doesn't think, will have much of an impact on McCain's campaign for re-election in Arizona. But behind closed doors, McCain was caught on tape expressing concern that Trump might damage his re-election chances. How is Donald Trump going to improve his standing with Latino voters? Uh, I give a lot more credit to Latino voters than perhaps the mainstream media would in just assuming that they, um, they have kind of a herd mentality and are all going to go to one candidate over another. Latinos, for the most part, hardworking, independent people who just want... They want to be able to have a good job. Those who are here legally and will follow the rules uh, that America has set forth, they want to work hard and provide for their family. Uh, I sure wish that politicians wouldn't worry about these racial divides that are, for the most part, made up by those who thrive on division and contention. And instead, politicians worry about perhaps what their record has said about themselves. Yeah, so a voice from the traditional stage of development where men and women are not quite so exquisitely sensitive to each other. And, you know, it sort of works on both sides, too. Um, you know, there's the, of course, this, this Hillary as enabler meme 
that Donald Trump is propagating right now, that Hillary threw the women under the bus who Bill had uh, affairs with, and that you know she's anything but a feminist, and that she ruined these women's lives. And he's going for it. You know, this was always sort of an oblique thing, and now it's going to be right out in the open. And that's not necessarily a bad thing either. I mean, there's 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 a, a sort of a, a a fruit that comes from a radical honesty where everything is said and put on the table. And but I would just say that for a lot of the population, pre postmodern, so modern and traditional people, what Hillary did is what women do when their men stray. You go after the woman. Uh, and, and it was so interesting to hear yesterday on, I think it was Anderson Cooper, it was on CNN, they, they have where they have the multiple pundits. And there were two women arguing. One was kind of a more sophisticated, um, modern, postmodern woman who was making the case that Hillary's an enabler. And there was a more traditional woman who was like, you mean to tell me you wouldn't go after a woman who came after your man? You have to fight for your man, she said. Tell me you wouldn't try to run her off. And this is what Amber Red does. It's like, it's, it's sort of the, you know, when we talk about how men see women as objects at that stage, women see that of men too. And men, you know, they can't be expected to control themselves. They think with two heads, you know, they're property that needs to be protected. I always think of that song by Dolly Parton, Jolene. Jolene, 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 Jolene. Please don't take my man. Please don't take my man just because you can. You know, it's like, where's the man in this? You know, doesn't he have a say? And of course, that's that, you know, more sophisticated postmodern. But women objectify men men objectify women, and we need to make, as integralists, a little more room for that, because that's reality at that stage of development. And, um, and we can see that people at that stage of development are chafing uh, at, you know, having this sort of political correct speech police laid on them. There's also an integral flavor to it. I mean, I, I always think of the work of David Data, where he talks about the polarity, the indestructible polarity of masculine and feminine, and how it's played out over, you know, up through hunter-gatherers and the patriarchy and, you know, all the way up, women voting and now feminism and so forth, that when we get to green, which is about equality and the sensitivity of particularly wounds, um, and the wounds of history. Uh, and that's what Green does. I mean, Green's job is to notice all of the slights and all of the ways that marginalized and victimized people have been marginalized and victimized. And so, you know, we're sort of going for this radical equality. And as he points out, that can be deadly for the male-female relationship. Because, you know, there's no tension. The polarity between male and female, and you see this in green couples where, you know, the, the, the roles are inverted and the men do the, the so-called women's work and women go out and make the money. And it's, a, you know, it's just part of the evolution of culture. 
as we go through that stage and still realize that there is a potent energetic between male and female that, of course, is way more complexified at higher stages. And actually, women can hold some of the traditional male energy energies and, and vice versa. But for people who are early modern and pre-modern, um, you know, it's that argument of misogyny on Trump's part uh, and, well, misogyny is the argument against Trump and Trump's argument about her being an enabler are not going to have a lot of currency with a lot of people on both sides. Um, I would also point out that one of the ways that people are bringing back the polarity, and, and I would say this is post-green, is in particularly the most sophisticated uh, bondage discipline, those 50 shades of gray, people, dominant submission, um, that, you know, when we work with those energies, and of course, those were the bane of humanity and certainly the bane of women for millennia, is, you know, they were truly submissive. Uh, and But now to play with those energies is part of what rekindles the male-female um, polarity and the juice of that. And I say that as a gay guy, uh, because that the, the traditional masculine-feminine polarities are also at play in same-sex couples, and oftentimes more freely, because we're less stuck with the traditional roles. So I guess that'll do. It's, uh, we're out of time. What I'd like to do is end with a song that I love. It's called Sensitive New Age Guys. And it gets a bit at this sort of flaccid lack of polarity that arises in green culture. And it's green making fun of green, and it's delightful. And so here it is. Uh, Brett, we ready? Yeah. Okay. So we will see you next week uh, for another Daily Evolver. Thank you for tuning in and listening. And we end here with a look at sensitive New Age guys. Thanks, folks. Okay, everybody, it's time for a little sing-along, but uh, just for you guys out there, all right? This is called Sensitive New Age Guys, and wherever you are right now, riding in your car or lying on the beach with your Walkman on, please sing along on this song. It'll help you with your male bonding kind of thing. And to help you, I've, I've rounded up every sensitive guy I could find in New York City tonight. So you just sing along with them, please don't be shy. Who like to talk about their feelings? Sensitive New Age guys. Who's into crystals, into healing? Sensitive New Age guys. Who like to dress like Richard Simmons? Sensitive New Age guys. Hard to tell from women. Sensitive new age guys. Who like to cry at weddings? Who think Rambo is upsetting? Who tapes 30 something on their VCRs? Who's got child on board stickers on their cars? Oh. Who love three men and a baby, a movie I hated Sensitive New Age Guys Whose consciousness is constantly raising 
yet his tax-free income is amazing. Sensitive new age guys. Who thinks that red meat is disgusting? Who's into UFOs, channeling, and dusting? Who believes us when we say we've got premenstrual syndrome? Who doesn't know who plays in the Seattle Kingdom? Lots of guys don't know who plays in the Seattle Kingdom. Guys not into brutal violent contact sports. Why? Let's ask these sensitive guys right here. Hey guys, do you know who plays in the Seattle Kingdom? Ooh, good answer, good answer. <laughs> who likes music that's repetitious? Sensitive new age guys. Who likes music that's repetitious? Sensitive new age guys. Who's concerned about your orgasm? Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. You guys said you'd help me out on this song. Yeah. What's going on? Well, we're sensitive, Christine. But not that sensitive. Well, I guess it's more important that they have them. Sensitive new age guys. Shirley MacLaine is on the inside track Who always sings on sing-alongs Even when they can't stand stupid sing-along songs Yes, I could tell a lot of you guys out there really hated this song Not all of you sang, but a lot of you did Because it was a sing-along and you didn't want to hurt my feelings Didn't want to hurt your feelings Because you know what that's like You've had your feelings hurt so many times because you're so sensitive. And yes, stupid. you're sensitive.